Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn this thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton. For the stay. Oh, Jack. Jack O'Hara. Boy, you asked me some interesting questions, my man. It's a great question, Jack. Jack, hey, it's Josh Radner. Hey there, Jack O'Hara. It's Johnny Damon. Jack, you had questions for me. Jack O'Hara? Absolutely. This message is for Jack O'Hara. Jack, how are you? Hey, Jack. Jack, hey, what's going on, man? How you doing? What's going on, Jack? Uh, listen, man, you know, you, you, you asked me a couple questions. Broadcasting around the world. You're listening to The O Show. In the show and uh, doing your thing, I mean, you've got some pretty big name guests. I've seen your, your stuff, so congratulations on your success. Jack O'Hara. Much nicer guy than Conan O'Brien with much better interviewing skills. Don't forget to share this episode on your social media. Now, let's get to it. I'm so boned. I forgot to get my girl tickets for the show tomorrow, and now it's sold out. It's her freaking birthday. Oh, dude. She's totally gonna break up with you. She's definitely gonna break up with me. Should've used TickPick. Wait, what'd you say? TickPick. Look. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. What? There are no hidden fees. What'd you guys think I said? Oh, TickPick. I thought you said TickPick. No hidden fees. Download today. Can you hear me? Okay. Amazing. How are you? I'm all right. Not bad. Not bad. Are you in LA? Yeah. Well, I live like. Hang on. This is freaking out. I live um, kind of up by the mountains near Big Bear. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm like right in the sticks. That's actually a nice place to be. Do you like snowboarding? I don't have any health insurance, so I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's all right. Where are you? I'm in Phoenix. Okay. Nice. So you're right where Lucas. That's right. Next door neighbor almost. Yeah, he's like Mesa, I think, something like that. Really? I mean, it's, I, I think Phoenix, the whole area, because there's like 12 different cities inside the actual city of Phoenix, you know, like Scottsdale, Mesa, Peoria, whatever. It's going to be the next LA in the next 10 to 20 years, I think. So many people are moving there. That's what everybody says. Everybody's leaving LA. I guess you're actually, you could actually attest to that. Are people leaving? <laughs> Like, in LA is a total ghost town. It's really? really? Yeah, like, it's, like, just, it's kind of bums everywhere, and it's just, everyone's left, like, when this stuff, because the reason you live in LA is because of, you know, nice restaurants and shit like that, stuff to do, 
And if that's not open, then it's just like, why do I live here and pay all this money? So, And then like you realize how much you're paying on taxes and everything like that. Yeah, without the actual incentives, you're like, hmm. This is a terrible decision, yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. What about you? Do you still plan on uh, being out there long term? Yeah, I think so. Like we, up in the mountains, it's kind of nice. We're like yeah. 80 miles east of LA and it's kind of like a, it's just pretty and it's cheap as fuck. Oh, yeah. Um, which is it's nice. It's nice looking and it's probably peaceful as hell too. Yeah, it's nice and quiet. I can like, as you can see, have multiple amps and rehearse and stuff up here without like pissing off neighbors. So it's kind of, kind of a novelty. Um, not bad at all, honestly. I mean, the weather is perfect. Uh, the desert is the only thing like you get used to it and you're kind of like, Hmm, it's nothing but sand here. But at the same time, like it's very warm. It's like January, February when it's 75, 80 degrees, like it's a lot better. I'm originally from New York. So it's like four feet of snow there right now. So, uh, it's way better to have that, but the summers are, are the brutal part. That, that's yeah. the one thing a lot of people try and get away from because it gets to like 130, 135 and you feel it too. Yeah. Every time I go and see Luke out there, or every time even just touring out there is like insane. Like my old band, we were like this fucking bunch of goths in leather and shit like that. And I remember the first show of, a, of the first American tour we ever did was in Phoenix. Oh, wow. It just, dude, it was so rough. Because normally when you finish a gig in England and you're like super sweaty, you're like, just go outside and you'll cool down. You ran outside there and it was just like, ah! <laughs> you're just suffocating like, immediately. Yeah, you're like, yeah, you feel like your fucking vans stick into the floor. It's so weird. <laughs> I kind of like it out there, though. Like, I have a lot of friends that live out there. Now. It's just... Oh, yeah. It's a nice place to visit, for sure. I don't know if I'd live out here long-term, but I, I definitely love living out here right now, especially this time of year. Yeah, it's kind of... It's really cheap. It's like Florida cheap. Yeah, that's what, like, man, Luke Boy's house, I was just like... It's unbelievable. All of his family from England have moved out there. All of his wife's family from Orange County have moved out there. It's like, it's a no-brainer. When you go and see his house, it's like, you paid how much for this? Like, this is ridiculous, so. So why, why for you, I guess, specifically uh, make the move from England? I guess just to get right into it. Why, uh, uh, why come over here? I, I moved over here just because my old band, we, we toured so much, and um. Mm-hmm it kind of just got to the point where we were always touring and it didn't really matter where we lived anymore. And London was leaving like a shitty one bedroom apartment in London that you're paying an absolute fortune for. It's just, it was like, fuck this. Do I need to do this anymore? And luckily my wife's, my wife's mother is actually American, even though she lives in England still. Um, so we were just like, should we just try and move out there and see what happens? And we went to the embassy and they just gave her a passport instantly. So it's just like, Oh, Let's just do that then. Wow. So we literally like even moving to LA cut our um, cut our bills and our living expenses in half. So that's kind of, that's yeah. a great deal. Yeah. So the opportunity is the same from like a yeah, like exactly the same. Like I just carried on touring and everything, and then eventually I kind of broke that band up because I'd kind of had enough of it, and um, yeah, just stayed out here. Like living is just it's just easier out here. I, right. I miss England so much. I miss, you know, the pub and <laughs> just, you know, I like our English culture, but man, it just, it is hard at times where you don't realize it until you go away for a long period of time and then you go back to it. Like the last time 
we toured and last time low lives went to England, like our bass player, Steve was keeping like a running count without telling anyone about the rain. Like it rained every day for 15 days in a row, which is totally normal. But he just got to the point. He was just like, fuck this. How do people live in this? Like just, it's just, it's just easier living in the States. You guys did like a total 180 moving to California and Arizona. Yeah. We, (laughs) it was very weird. Like we just, as soon as we started low lives, we were like, how can we go on tour cheaply and have our living expensive cheap? So we just all spread out. Like Steve, our bass player for a brief period was the only one that lived in LA, but now he's moved up by me. So me and him live up here in the mountains. Our guitar player, Jax lives all the way up Bakersfield and then Luke lives in Arizona. So rehearsing is fun. (laughs) (laughs) Bakersfield is basically the same weather as Phoenix, especially uh, for the summer. I, I've been there for a summer or two. It, it gets pretty hot. Nice. Oh, my God. So, I mean, that's got to influence your style of music because you were talking about, obviously, with the, the Defiled in, in London, like the weather is a complete shift in the way that you kind of go about your your inspirations for writing yeah. songs because you moved to L.A. It's always sunny. Yeah. Like it rarely ever rains. It probably rains like once a year. Yeah, once. <laughs> once and then then, like it's just because you can definitely hear the the different sounds between the two bands you feel like the weather is yeah i actually said that actually in like interviews doing with defiled stuff was like everyone was like oh how was it living in america blah blah blah. and i was like man it's like it was kind of hard to write angry music anymore yeah because you're just like everything's easy and happy like it's kind of weird like in london you're just struggling through life and i think that kind of influenced the writing a lot and I didn't realize it until I moved to the States and was like holy shit like <laughs> I'll keep on writing like I was writing like low life songs like some of the first low life songs I wrote when I moved to America and I was like trying to like thumb it into the defiled kind of thing and it just didn't didn't really work at all <laughs> it was like trying to add triplets to these songs trying to make riffs heavier but it was just like it kind of just didn't really work so and then we just we just got to the point. I just I don't know. wasn't really feeling it anymore. I was always trying to just do stuff like I'm doing now. So it was just like you know, jump ship and just. Did it get to a point where like you look back at it now and you're like, man, like we really turned into like a heavy metal, like angry sounding band. Like it, you, like you always wanted it to be like what it's like with the low lives now when it comes yeah. how, how it sounds. Yeah, I don't know really. Like because we started the file so long ago. Like we were just we were fucking around when we were like kids doing it and yeah. stuff. So, um, and then it kind of got heavier and heavier and then we kind of started adding more melody and stuff. And then at the end, like we went to do an EP at Dave Grohl's place and we were like, we don't want to do like Kempers and shit like that. We were like, we want to use real amps, real drums, no, um, no drum replacing, no nothing like that. And it just didn't work. Like in that style of metal, it just, you a lot of that kind of stuff is down to production and it just didn't work at all for us like listening back to it was just like shit this was a terrible idea <laughs> even at Grohl's place well that's where like all the magic happens too yeah exactly it was amazing. Like, if we did low lives there it would sound fucking great yeah but like we tried he has you know they would just like help yourself to all the foos gear like use whatever you want really so we're like, oh, let's use all these old marshals and all this stuff and it just got to the end and was like because pat uses like 
you know, 5150s that are like the quintessential like metal amp. But after like a day of getting guitar tones, I was like, just get the fucking 5150 down. You know what I mean? Like we're just trying to make it sound natural and organic and it just didn't really sound natural and organic. How'd you go about, you know, setting things up there at the studio? Did you actually like reach out to them individually? And just um, like- I had a friend. So there's, do you remember a band called My Ruin? Yeah. Was, um, so um, my friends in that, new because like he plays with um you know that chevy metal band the one that taylor's band so right. my friend plays guitar in that band and he was like oh you should talk to my friend lou about recording in 606 and they kind of pick and choose who records there they only record a couple of like outsider bands a year and then i got in touch with lou and he was like oh i really fucking love your band you want to come and do it so we just we went there and did it and it, it never got released nothing ever happened we did that and then we went to kind of re-record some of those songs with a better production. And then halfway through and through doing that, I was just like, I'm over this man. I don't really want to do it anymore. Wow. And just, we were moving labels. Like we just moved, we were moving from nuclear blast to another label and all this. It was just like, when you do a band for that long and it doesn't, I mean, we did really good in England and it just, but it didn't take off anywhere else at all. And everywhere else was a struggle. I mean, the last tour we did out here was with like in this moment and they were like arena shows, which was really cool. But man, we were doing that tour, like sleeping in a van for like, we did 14 days straight of sleeping in a van and there was no beds. It was like sleeping across seats for 14 days. We were like, just try and save as much money to do it. But what was weird, then we'd go to England and it would just be kind of good living again. It was kind of a bit rough. <laughs> How long were you guys together in a filed? easy 10 years i'd say yeah probably about 10 and it kind of took off about eight years and then it just i don't know just didn't really it felt like after a while it was just felt like flogging a dead horse and my heart wasn't really in it anymore so it was just like why am i doing this you're kind of finished breaking through ceilings like they say i mean they i don't know who they are but you know uh, I, i hear that after like it's like that seven or eight year test where bands get to that point. It's like, all right, are we either going to continue to grow and inspire each other? Or is this as best as it gets? Like, was it mutual? Like, was it like a mutual understanding for all of you guys? Um, Yeah, this is it. A little bit. It was my, it was basically, we were the ones that kind of, we were in it from the get go kind of thing. And um, yeah, I just kind of called them up one day and I was just like, I'm I'm out. (laughs) I don't really want to do this anymore. Um, you know, just I think it just there's no. It's really exciting when you're in a band and everything's just this gradual coming up and it's fucking great. But there does get that point where you just kind of like, oh shit, are we on the downturn now? And I kind of felt like it got to that, um, mm. kind of reached a reached a point kind of thing. So yeah, that's, I, are you guys all on good terms? Yeah, yeah. yeah like you see some bands and it's just like, oh my god, they don't even talk to each other. Yeah, Axel Slash didn't talk to each other for like 25 years. Yeah. No, no, we still, me and Alex still talk to each other a lot. Talk to Vince. Vince disappears once in a while. <laughs> um, and then I speak to Paul, the drummer, a lot, and Luke, you know, all the old guys. I mean, Adam, the old bass player, was like my best man at my wedding. So we're okay. still close and stuff. So, um, yeah, we're still, still friends. So it's good. So now looking at it now, in how, how many years did you have in between both bands? Because I'm sure like it took you a while to kind of just sit back 
decompress and be like, hmm, what's my next move going to be? Because you said you were writing like some of those first original uh, low live songs. You know, you, you find the drummer and you guys click. You're listening to the same bands, whether it's, you know, Smashing Pumpkins alike. Like, how, how long did it kind of take you to realize, like, all right, now I'm going to go back into what I originally wanted to do? So right at the end of The Defiles, um, I got this like call to go and play guitar, like fill in for a band in the States. And they were called The Eeries. And they were signed to, you know, Interscope. And I just kind of, the default, we kind of weren't doing anything for like a couple of months. So I was like, I'm going to just go and do this. And it's basically my friend Isaiah is the singer and he was married to Francis Bean Cobain. And they had all this crazy hype in the States. And it was just like, it was an easy gig with no pressure because in all my bands, I'm usually, and I'm the singer and the songwriter and you know, it's kind of a lot of pressure. So it was quite nice. We would just, I would just turn up and they had a big house in the hills and I'd turn up in their garage and just play guitar and everything was set up. And I'd play guitar for two hours and then I'd go home. And it was like no pressure, no nothing. But then at the end of that, that even got a bit like, I don't know, a bit, it wasn't really what I wanted to do. So at that time I started another, I started Low Lives with, um, with a guy called DJ, um, played in like plays for like Dorothy and stuff like that. So yeah. me and him started writing together and then we were trying to find a drummer and then me and Luke kind of connected because we, we didn't really know each other. We knew of each other and we, you know, we were friends on Instagram and shit like that. We were just like, you know, two English dudes that lived in America. So you kind of somehow know each other. And we both liked like old BMWs and stuff like crappy old BMWs. So um, we kind of got talking and he was like, oh, how's the band going? And I'd literally about, six months before was like, oh, band's done, band's dead, like the Defiles done. And he was like, what are you doing now? And I was like, oh, I'm doing this. I'm actually trying to find a drummer right now. So I sent him the songs and then instantly he was like, this is fucking rad. We should start something. So um, so that was kind of easy. And then he already knew Steve because we were like, okay, we need to find a bass player now. And at this point, DJ, the guy I'd started with, kind of left Um to do his Dorothy thing with his missus. Mm -hmm. And um, so then me and he basically had Luke already knew Steve. So we got Steve on board. He was like, oh, I know this dude's handsome bass player that is a really fucking good player. And he turned up and then first rehearsal was like, cool, done. This is, this is great. This is easy. And then we kind of tried to do the band, tried to do Low Lives as a, as a three piece at first. And we went, to do a tester song with our friend Bo, who actually did the record, like the now the record, I mean singles now. He he recorded everything and we were like, man, this sounds rad. But we kind of was like, man, it kind of lacked having like certain lead parts and stuff. And I was trying to work out a way of running like two guitar rigs and running loopers and all this shit. And then I was like, man, I don't really want to do that because it's just too much pressure. So then at Bo's place, um, our guitar player Jackson was he was in another band his own band and he was recording with Bo and then he messaged me on Instagram I was like oh Bo showed me your song that you guys just did I really fucking love it and I was like oh well actually we need another guitar player do you want to come in and he was like cool done so then he came in after like the first song because we'd spoken to a lot of guitar players before that and they were just like kind of typical LA well how much does it pay how much is this and you're just like dude, we're a new band with no money. There is no pay. It's, you know, you're doing this for the love of music. So then Jackson 
came in and like after half a song, we were just like, this is the fucking guy. So, um, so yeah, it was mega, it was really easy to get the band together and it's kind of good because everyone's kind of got their head screwed on and it's kind of easy. <laughs> I mean, that's the most important thing I feel like. Do you, yeah. do you feel like in your experience that, you know, building that chemistry first, like knowing that you guys can get along, you have not similar interest in a say, but you're able to connect on that certain level before you can actually start playing together? I think that's almost the most important thing about being in a band now because yeah. there's so many dudes, especially, you know, so many good guitar players and stuff. Um, drummers are harder to find. But, like, when me and Luke first met, we didn't meet in a rehearsal room. We went to the pub and we just sat down for a few hours and got pissed. And then I was like, I like this guy. And he was like, oh, I like you too. So then we were just like, then we should go and rehearse and see how it goes. So it was, it was kind of easy, really. But, yeah, as you say, it is chemistry between humans is in a band is the most kind of important thing to be honest because you're going to be cooped up with them 24 hours a day so you have to you know you're going to be pretty much sharing a bed with them most of the time in shitty motel sixes so you better uh, kind of get on with each other yeah i mean it's interesting to see you know like bands like you guys who get along you play well together and then you see other big time bands who are kind of just meshed together whether it's they they started it themselves and kind of like regressed against each other over time or you know the business side of it producers put them together and they yeah. separate, right business side is always going to get in the way of things yeah. as well just the money conversation comes up it's always gonna you know split bands up really isn't it so how quickly did you guys kind of realize the uh toxic nature of the business side and producers and the money side of everything Oh, I feel like it is well known at this point, even for me. My brother's in Nashville. He's an aspiring musician. And I just hear from the outside, like, there's things, like you said, like, you do it because you love it. You have a passion for it, and you know what you want to do. Yeah. Um, so how early on did you realize that you kind of had, like, fear from that or, like, kind of, like, manipulated pretty, where, like, you can do what you want to do? Pretty quickly. The good thing is within in London, it's not so much like that in England. Like, the music industry in England seems like very it's like a closer community kind of thing and everyone doesn't fuck people over all the time it was right. not until i kind of moved out here that i noticed a lot of like just like shadiness at times where you just you hear of you know friends that are in these new bands and then oh this manager wants to manage us but he wants this percentage and he wants all this money up front and it's just like you kind of, I think when you're younger, you're like, oh, you'll do anything to get famous. Like, and when you get older, you're just like, you kind of just start to do things on your own terms a little bit. And I feel like that was the whole plan with Low Lives when we started. We were like, we are going to start this like in a van, no, no kind of bullshit. Like, we're not going to chase people. We, we, we basically waited for people to come to us. We're not going to, if we email someone about, you know, that we kind of know about stuff and if they don't reply, we're not emailing them again kind of thing. We're not going to... And I felt like at the end of the default, we were getting to that point of, like, kind of chasing up people a little bit and it just felt like you want to work with people that want to work with you. There's no point in getting a manager that just sees you as, like, oh, you know, money or whatnot. Oh, yeah. You need... So this time around, we, like, built like our manager and our agent and everything now are like people that we, we love and respect rather than just some dude that's just doing it because 
it's money kind of thing. Like, it's like, do you really love our band? If you don't really love our band, then we don't really want to work with you kind of thing. That's the kind of mentality we've had in this band. Because otherwise you just chase, otherwise you'll end up doing shit that you don't want to do. And that's, that's a bad thing. Like, there's stuff I've done in old bands where I'm just like, that was pretty soul destroying. You don't want to look back in years and years time and be like fuck i wish i didn't do that you kind of got to start just doing stuff in your own terms like i went to i went to watch this melvin's documentary they they had this showing of their documentary in right. in the theater downtown and they had all these fucking super famous dudes there and they showed this they played first and then they had then they showed the documentary and in this documentary i had like josh hom and chris cornell and Grohl and all these people talking about the Melvins and they were just like, they're the only band out of our whole scene that did everything on their own terms. And they're the only ones that are truly happy. Yeah. They probably like scrape by a bit and then it cuts to like buzz in a real shitty beat up VW car. But like all the other people are just like, they're the only true ones that are truly happy because they didn't like chase success. They just did it on their own terms and they're still doing it on their own terms now. And they still probably I mean, they get by. Like, that's all I want. I don't want, like, I've never wanted, like, huge, I need a big mansion and all this money and all this fancy shit. All I need is for it to be, like, a reasonably well-paid day job. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just the, like, you should be doing it for the love of music rather than the love of trying to get fame. And that, I actually, after watching that, Melvin's documentary is when I quit The Default. <laughs> wow. I literally, the day after... I was like, because I was watching it going, oh man, like I'm unhappy and I don't really want it to go on forever. And literally I walked out of there and I went with my friend Jack and he was just like, man, that really like <laughs> hit home a little bit about some stuff. And I was like, fuck, I've got to make some decisions now. So yeah, literally the day after watching that, I called the guys and I was like, I'm out. Because yeah. it, was, it was like super inspiring to watch. I have not actually watched that documentary since, but I don't know, it just felt, I don't know. I was like, fuck, that's what it should be. They're doing it for the... It showed them, like, in the height of all those Seattle bands getting signed. They went to, like... They were being harassed by every major label, and then they did this showcase with... And all the people around them were like, this has to be the fucking show. They ended up, like, putting full stacks up, and they faced the amps. Like, they literally faced each other and didn't face the crowd the entire show and just being like, we don't want to get signed by a major label. We don't want this. And they still got fucking signed to a major label even after playing because there was so much hype about them. But the fact that they played with, like, their backs turned and stuff, they were so anti-fame. I could just kind of... It's kind of quite nice to see nowadays. Oh, yeah. I mean, I saw that with, obviously, Buzz Osborne, and then you see, like, like you said, the Cornells and the Grohls of the world saying, like, yeah, like he's the one true happy guy, like to this day, yeah. that is doing what he loves because he never went with what the machine wanted him to do. Yeah, I, I think that's what like Kurt Cobain was probably drawn to by them early on too, because yeah. they are like the studs of that Seattle yeah. scene early yeah. on before it even took off with the Nirvanas and the Pearl Jams and the Soundgardens and the Alice in Chains of the world. Because yeah. Kurt Cobain, obviously, he the, the the story there is that he did not want to be famous. And yeah. uh, it obviously led to what happened to him. But like mm-hmm. the Melvins aspect to it, like you're right. Like there's so many things that they probably could have done, but it's like, we love what we do now. Like we're happy, we're content now. Like why not just keep doing it our way? 
And they just keep on kind of just doing ridiculous shit. Like, let's just have two bass players on this album and let's have two drummers on this tour. And they just kind of make this weird music that they fucking worship. So um, I'm not saying all of it is fucking stellar at times, but um, you've kind of got to just respect the fact they've just done what they wanted to do the whole time. Um, That's Seattle too for you. You We talked about the weather kind of playing a factor in like what you write. Like Seattle is rainy almost a hundred percent of the time, you know? So like that definitely influenced how angry everybody was. Like you were saying in London with the defile, how that kind of like shaped your image. Like that's why, you know, you see the, the Cobains and the Cornells and the Lane Staley's unfortunately going the way they did. And even Scott Weiland, he was Huntington Beach. Stone Temple Pilots was kind of out of that scene, but they were all kind of just like meshed, like these heavy uh, garage bands that were playing music that, you know, represented like the rebellious nature in their soul because of, again, like I feel like it was the scene. Like it was always dark and gloomy. No one was really happy. And then because now you guys shift to moving out here uh, to, you know, kind of shift gears to what you guys are doing now with the low lives. Like, how did you how were you guys able to find that new inspiration to write songs the way you wanted to after being in that mindset for a long time? I don't know, really. I mean, it, it has affected like even now, you know, writing for the next lot of batch of songs and stuff. And it is hard at times where you're like, shit, is this too happy? Like you kind of almost kind of where like happy weezer and happy foo fighters kind of songs you're just like is this a bit much is this really us kind of thing there is times where i have to like check and be like okay i need to write something a little bit gloomier kind of thing i think lyrics are still kind of gloomy um but yeah actually up where we live up the mountain now is kind of quite it does rain at times and stuff and it snows a fucking lot yeah i'm guessing maybe that might affect it at some point but yeah at the moment, it is definitely, like, I have to make a conscious effort at times to be like, shit, this is too happy. Like, I send song ideas over to Luke, and it's just like, and then I listen back the next day, and I'm just like, the hell am I thinking? This is, like, pure pop music. <laughs> I mean, music is better that way for me. Like, I've always been a, a, a stern rock and roll fan. Like, I've always enjoyed, like, the true, like, edginess that there is to rock and roll. Like, you look at, like, country stars living in sunshine all the time down in Florida and Georgia and all that, wherever they're from. And it's just like way too poppy, way too happy. And then to kind of go back to what you were talking about before, like some bands, like when they get caught up in the machine and like listening to the business side and the producers, like you you are sometimes playing stuff that you don't want to play. And I've just like never really understood that from that perspective, because like, if you, if you don't want to play it, like if your soul's not in it, it's not going to sound good regardless of how good the auto tune is or how good the producers make it sound. Right. And then you're going to have to stand on stage for the next foreseeable, you know, years playing that song over and over again. And then just, that's got to kind of affect your soul after a while. Surely that's got to take its toll after a minute. So this thing, you kind of, I don't know, you need to write music that you truly believe in. Otherwise it's just, because people can tell, like people can tell when your heart's not in it. I think the last end tail end of the Defard, I've I had a few friends that are like journalists and stuff and be like, Your heart's not in this anymore, isn't it? And I was like, no, no, I don't think it is anymore. So people can tell. There's also there's that element of when you're tour there is kind of a bit of an act because you do the same, you know, shit every night and whatnot. But um yeah, I think it's you have to you have to play something you actually believe in. 
So what's what's the inspiration by, behind some of the new singles? You guys obviously came out with a few in 2020. The I Don't Like You single just comes out uh, this year. What, what were some of the inspirations behind writing these specific songs? Well, those, those songs are actually really, really old because when we started the band, we did Burn Forever on its own first like and didn't release it. That was just like a tester that we did to, you know, to get Bo on board. And then we were like, let's just go and do a full record and we'll go from there and then just as time went past whenever we would talk to like our press guy and then we we had a few managers until we found the right manager we have now um and just all the advice from all these people were just like just don't release an album like in this day and age i'm kind of old school where i still want to listen to an album um and it does feel weird releasing all these songs. So all the songs we've released so far were all actually made and recorded at the same time for one album. So I think what we might do is release like a limited, like a vinyl release of the album in the order that we, you know, we originally thought it was going to be. So I think we'll do that at some point just so we can have like a physical copy of it as an album. But yeah, all those songs, the I Don't Like You and Church, the last two songs are the last two songs from what was going to be the first record. So... Okay. So now now we're starting to um, move into like just getting, I think, I don't know what we're going to do next. Maybe an EP, maybe, I don't think it'll be an album. I still, I don't, yeah, I feel feel like it's just a bit of a waste because especially nowadays with social media and everything, you only get like one chance there. You can build up an album first, you know, ramp up a record for six months. As soon as that album is out, that's it. Like, what what is there to do and especially now that like fucking coronavirus is here and stuff people have got no attention whatsoever and normally you know if you have released a record you go and tour it for a few years but you know as there's no touring it just seems now the the right thing to do is like maybe just release singles just constant singles as well i mean bands like Boomer the horizon are doing it like just almost like how like dance acts kind of do it where they just release loads of singles and then they at the end of that they just put it as one album that you can physically buy so i don't know i don't know what the plan is at this point i i definitely understand it from that perspective but i'm with you though i i, I like you know listening to like a full record because you have like those one or two hit songs that will be played over and over again on yeah. a record but then you have those other seven eight nine songs on the record that you listen to and you're like oh this is a pretty damn good song but like it never really gets the recognition like when you like put out singles one by one like that like you're expecting it like each song to be huge you know or like the vinyl you could be a lot more creative knowing that like okay like we have like these one two three songs that we really love and then there's these other fun jams that we put together that hopefully everybody else uh, finds and develops and they love it too and just like nice interludes and stuff like yeah. that, like little atmospheric parts. Those are the kind of bits you kind of miss nowadays. I remember listening to like records when I was a kid and just hearing all the, you know, how some of the songs would join up and stuff was kind of cool. So yeah, that kind of magic has gone <laughs> a little bit. But It's totally gone at this point, especially because again, rock and roll is not what it was in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, like pop, hip hop, rap has kind of taken over as like everything. the epicenter of the music industry, which is unfortunate because I'm kind of an old soul in that sense where I'm like, this is garbage. You know, like I'm, I'm like that 22 year old grandparent. That's like, how can you listen to this? Yeah. I, I think it's a choice. Yeah. 
I mean, most of those guys are pretty cool. Like if you get to know them for sure, like I can definitely appreciate where they're coming from. I just cannot get into it. Me either. I'm still, it needs to have guitars and drums and it needs to kind of be real still, but there's not many of those bands left nowadays. All those kind of bands are kind of metal bands. You're either a metal band or an indie band. There's no like just straight up rock bands anymore. Like, well, there is, but there's not many of them. I mean, and then there's a lot of the ones that do like the old school, you know, kind of Hendrixy, like Zeppelin-y kind of bands. There's still those kind of bands around, like slightly bluesy and soul-based, but I feel like there's not that many, like, there's no main punk artists anymore. There's no, like you were saying, like most of these like big rock bands today, like Greta Van Fleet is probably... (laughs) the most recognizable, like they are Led Zeppelin, you know, <laughs> like that was like the first album that came out. I'm like, ah, that's Robert Plant. I think yeah. this record is kind of a little different, which is nice to see, but a yeah. lot of the bands today, like it's hard to find original bands that come out with original stuff, trying to find a new sound. Yeah. I think, yeah. Cause every sound is maybe every sound has been explored. That's why electronic music is getting so big. Cause it's kind of the only thing that's kind of pushing boundaries still, I guess. Have you guys um, been recording anything? Have you guys been working at all? Since yeah, we've been, we've been recording stuff even throughout this whole time. Like me and Luke both have setups and stuff. So we just send each other stuff. We've been working with some other people recording us. Um, but yeah, this kind of, kind of coronavirus thing has kind of halted all of that, to be honest, at this point. So oh, yeah. we're still writing. I mean, man. We have we have like a big shared Dropbox folder that all band members have. I mean, we have there's got to be pushing 60, 70 songs in there easily. Like it's a constant thing. Like writing that was what was weird at the end of the Tafal. I really struggled writing music for that band. Um, whereas this time, it's like it feels like the most because it's the shit I grew up on. I think it's so embedded in your head that it becomes so easy to write mm-hmm. and. So now, now it's like, every time I pick up a guitar, I can kind of write something that could work or something. So even if it's like me on an acoustic on a voice note or some songs that are kind of, you know, 50, 60% there. So there's, we have a, we have a lot of stuff written, which is good. And that's what I think need to carry on doing. Cause if you halt it for a second, you kind of get a bit, it's like, if you, if you a dude that goes running like jogs and stuff, if you don't do it for a few months, when you go back to it, it's fucking hard. So I think it's the same with songwriting. You have to keep it kind of mentally ticking over um, for it to kind of remain being smooth. Yeah. I mean, it's a repetition thing. Like you said, like whether you're trying to stay in shape when it comes to exercising, writing songs, playing a sport, anything like you have to be doing it constantly almost every day in order yeah. to keep that, you know, same mentality up. Yeah. And then, like, that was probably one of the the things that I looked at as like a positive, like going into COVID. I, I was like telling my dad, and my brother, I'm like, okay, like this is probably going to be bad for the next six, six months, 12 yeah. months, 18 months. But after this, we're going to get a ton of great music from a ton oh, of great artists because yeah. they're all going to be writing. Yeah. And they're all going to be kind of angry. <laughs> <laughs> And I guess, like, post-Trump as well, maybe. Although maybe that would make people happier music. Who knows? <laughs> That's probably what, uh, you know, Tom Morello and those guys, Rage Against the Machine, were probably gearing up, ready to do. Because I know they were on, like, their comeback tour before that all went down. Yeah, they were. That would have been good to see. I'd like to see them again with Zach singing. It's been, what, 20-plus tw- years? Yeah, it's been a long time. I didn't... 
Evil Empire was the last thing that I really loved that they did. Yeah. And that was, fuck man, that was a long time, long time ago. Yeah. But definitely, it didn't really feel the other thing that they did. <laughs> I so. mean, that's kind of like the gist with most bands. Like their first few records, amazing. And then like, whether it's that they don't live up to the original records or just in our heads, they don't live up because the original records are like, that's the original. Like that was amazing. Like, um, obviously like nevermind with Nirvana, like, couldn't hold a candle to their second one, you know, it was two completely different sounds, but everybody looks at Nirvana in like the nevermind state as yeah. opposed to, I forget what the second one was with, um, even have a, right. Um, but you know, besides from like a few really good bands that stay disciplined, like it, like we were alluding to before you, uh, not only experiment in other things, like you look at the the shine downs and the highly suspects and even like the royal bloods of the world today, a few great first albums. Shine down held it down for almost a decade, fifteen years. Their last few albums very you know poppy in a sense, right? Yeah, kind of poppy. to the point where it's like, are yeah. they experimenting or did they just feed in oh, the machine? Yeah. Yeah, I feel like that with them. And it's like as you said, like highly suspects. Like man, that record was so good, and then not dissing what they're doing now, but it, it's, it's just it's different. Not, it's the totally different band. I would almost say the same with Foo Fighters at this point. I fucking, they were like the band that I worshipped as a kid. Um, but yeah, they, I guess they've just, I, but I guess they've just grown up. That's why. And they're not, they can't be fucking angry teenagers all their lives. So you can try to, but that would be kind of embarrassing. But. My, my theory with the Foos is that, you know, because I feel like they're mainly in control of what they're doing. They have 606. They have their own setup. Grohl's going to do whatever he wants to do. He's like the face of rock today, right? I, I feel like they're just experimenting with something different because they have been together for 25 plus years and yeah. you kind of have to keep things exciting. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's, uh, God, man, those first two records were so good. <laughs> oh my God, I know. That's literally the, when me and Luke first started writing and I would go down to his house when he lived in Orange County and we'd write songs. He was like, like, what's the vibe? Like, what are we, what are we trying to do this band like? And I was like, this is what I've always wanted a band to be like. And I showed him there's like this live Foo Fighters gig from like 1995 where they play at like Brixton Academy. And it's like, I showed Luke that and he'd never seen it before. And he was just like, holy shit, this is like, this is it. And I was like, cool, this is what our band is kind of going to be all about. So well, I mean, that's he, he's definitely an inspiration to millions of aspiring rock musicians around the world. And, and you just said it right there. I, I think the new record, Medicine at Midnight, is, again, it's very disco-esque. I think that's the way he put it, too. But it, it, it sounds good. Like, it's not like Shine Down or Highly Suspect, who, like, completely went, like, a total 180. And, like, it's just like, you're not the same band anymore. Like, they, they have a few songs on that record that kind of, like, they... They kept to their back to them, yeah, yeah. But like, there's definitely a few songs that are definitely disco and kind of jazzy. To where it's like, oh, this is a different Foo Fighters. Yeah, Hopefully, they're, not, yeah. they're just experimenting. Yeah, they're allowed to because they're yeah. Foo Fighters. <laughs> I mean, Cornell did the same thing before he passed. Like, he had one really poppy record that kind of goes under the radar because everything else he did was brilliant. But there was That's like one, one um, album, right? That's the one with the, like the Bond soundtrack one, right? Right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I never listened to that record. Was it like super pop then? Oh, yeah. Like uh, close to 
not I don't want to compare it to EDM, but like kind of well, an EDM sound with Chris Cornell's kind of auto-tuned voice, which like I don't understand why they do that. Auto-tune his voice. Yeah, well, it was his voice, but it was definitely kind of techno. Like you could tell, like it's not Chris Cornell clean. Like they, they did something to it, but they also made a ton of those songs since he's passed. I know Vicky's coming out with like a ton of his stuff that was unreleased. Some of his covers. There's a ton of those songs on that Poppy record that they um, did rock covers of. So. Oh, cool! So the actual rock versions, of right? Them. And they sound so much better too. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Trying to think, what was the other? Oh, no, you know, do you know much silver chair kind of stuff? Like, oh, yeah. Daniel, it's like the same with him. Like, if you listen to his stuff now, you're like, is this the same human being? Like, it's really good. Like, it's, I respect what it is, but it's such a difference from what his old band was. It's kind of crazy. But then again, silver chair went fully like every album was totally different from one another. Oh, yeah. I mean, you'll probably talk about it 20, 25 years from now, too. Like, you might be in, like, a totally different stage in your life where you're writing totally different music because that's what inspires you at the time, you know? Yeah. So, like, you're going to grow and evolve and, like, look back to be like, oh, those were certain times in my life where I was either feeling, like, really angry and then I finally had a breakthrough with Low Lives and now, like, 20, 25 years later, whether you guys are still a band or you're off doing your own thing, you're going to be like, oh, this is a completely different sound. Which is, like, I feel like... You make a piano album. <laughs> yeah. Like, you kind of have to. Like, I, I'm, I would be so interested to see what how Kurt Cobain would have evolved if he was still yeah. alive today, you know? I was thinking that, too, because I remember seeing interviews and stuff and saying that he was kind of going to push it more towards, like, R.E.M. kind of stuff. And But then in Utro, I mean, was, like, the noisiest record they ever did, and it was the last one. So it was just like, are they going to... Would they have continued down that road? I don't know. Uh, I mean, he probably, like, all you need is him with a guitar in his hand. He, w- he would have sold, like, I'm one of the few that think, because I've read many things that they were pretty much broken up at the time that he, yeah. he left. Like, I-, I feel like Grohl would have gone on to do, maybe not to the-, the level that he's doing it now with the Foo Fighters, but he would have been on his own and been recognized, where yeah. he could have gone off and do his own thing. And then, yeah. of course, they could have gotten back together for a few gigs. But I think he definitely, like you said, like Michael Stipe was definitely like one of his best friends, I feel like, one of his biggest mentors with R.E.M. And uh, he definitely would have kind of evolved as a human being if he mel- mellowed out a little bit and just had like some, maybe some acoustic records. Like it definitely would have been interesting to see. Like, like folky, almost weird records. I think that's what you would have And I, I agree that I think Grohl would have carried on doing having Foo Fighters no matter what, because those songs were, you know, over all of Nirvana pretty much anyway. Like, he was writing those songs, which is kind of cool, actually, because since they did a lot of the re-releases and stuff, it's kind of cool to hear his weird demo versions of the first Foo Fighters record. They're actually, like, it's kind of cool to hear, especially where some of them are, like, 91, 92. I mean, there's a a lot of songs that... uh, I forget, it was, like, First Watch or whatever, like, before he even named it Foo Fighters... Yeah, and, like you listen to like some of those songs. I think he put it in one of the documentaries, just saying like, "Oh my god, did I write this?" Like some of it's good, and some of it he looks back at and it's like, "Oh man, why did some I of it sounds this? really cool though." Still, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I, I've actually watched it was like the Sonic Highways like outtakes, isn't it? Where he shows all the weird songs that he recorded with that dude in that studio that's kind of falling to pieces. Oh my god, I know. Was I, there was a there was a cool moment because my brother's a big jam band guy, like. 
almost a cultish Dave Matthews band type guy. Nice. And Dave Grohl's like looking at all the bands that recorded there. He's like, oh, the Melvins, here's us, Nirvana. He's like, wait a minute, Dave Matthews recorded here? Are you serious? Nirvana's <laughs> just like, <laughs> No, but like that's crazy to think about because as soon as that all goes down, Cobain commits suicide. It's a huge deal. They were pretty much broken up at the time anyways, but like I feel like was it more Grohl, like writing his own stuff and getting it out there or – did the the label like this business side of it like think like this guy's writing music because the people close to the bands like this guy's writing music like let's jump on this guy and like do the big post nirvana yeah. thing because we got to keep this whole grunge scene going they have, yeah they did he does have the same manager and stuff so he still has that same dude today so who knows i mean there was like a bit of a gap and obviously they played one of his songs on like a radio, on like Vedder's radio station and stuff. And I don't think anyone was like behind it at that point. But man, imagine the scramble major labels trying to get that. Like, that must be ridiculous old shit. The drama from Foo Fighters writing music and it's kind of like Nirvana. And just think, like, it, it couldn't, like, his songs are obviously incredible. Like, definitely there's some that are just great jams and there's some that, like, just touch on your heartstrings a little bit. Yeah. But, like, they could have been average songs and they still put it out there and he still would have been somewhat decent. Yeah. yeah. And that, like, that's, like, the whole business side. Like, I was listening, or I, I read an interview that you did a few years ago kind of talking about, like, the move to L.A. and the business side of things and how you were kind of, like, aggravated that there were, like, some of these really big, stars that aren't even writing their own material in a lot of ways like were there any like specific guys that you were like thinking of when you said that because i was just kind of curious to see there's there's a lot of them like it's but it's that's what it is in la it's like you have to go and you have to go in with you know writers and stuff like that i mean i've even done it where i've written for other bands and stuff it's kind of everywhere in la and it was just yeah it's kind of i don't know it kind of hurts your soul a little bit when you find out that someone didn't write their own shit that's kind of it's just sad (laughs) especially when it's like a hit yeah when it's fucking huge it's crazy i have loads of producer friends that produce like insane shit that they've written but you would never know that they wrote it so but that's what it is in la though i feel like that's probably what it's like in nashville too i mean there's so many la people moving to nashville now anyway uh just because the music scene there is good. It's, I feel it's like the music scene out here is kind of it's kind of bloated and it's just there's still a lot of those like 80s strip kind of dudes and stuff right. peddling that kind of stuff. You're like, really, bro? Like that's not gonna catch on again. Um it could. Yeah. But I just I mean, the world's I, constantly changing, but we'll see. Yeah. I just feel like there isn't a there's definitely no I feel like there isn't a music scene in LA anymore. Yeah. I mean like, to your credit, like, there's literally guys just trying to keep the 80s alive in, in yeah. L.A. I mean, there's probably, like, have you ever been to a show at Whiskey, at the at the Whiskey? Yeah, many times. I mean, are any of the bands, like, kind of, uh, like... The same old bands. The problem is, in L.A., there's not that many venues anymore. That's what makes it really hard. There's, there's like, this cool, like, Silver Lake kind of scene of, like, shoegazy scene, and there's a bit of, like, an indie scene out there, but, like especially for like someone like me living, coming from England, like I remember the first tour we did in the States and the LA show was at the whiskey. And I was like, Oh my God, this is going to be like game changers. This fucking legendary venue, man. It's truly like absolute horseshit. Like it's unbelievable. Like you have to pay, you can't even park your bus in their parking lot. You have to pay. It costs like 60 bucks to park a bus outside and just, 
it's like, hey, can I have a beer? And they come up with like three beers and you're like, thanks. Like, it's just, but that's what LA is. It's, they're trying to, they don't really look after bands out here. There's almost like uh, the whiskey, there's, if there's a headline, if there's a bill of three bands, like a touring bill of three bands, the whiskey will chuck four bands before it that have to sell tickets in advance to do it. And it's just an, an utter shit show. But that's kind of what a lot of LA is like. Like, it's just, they're not, it's not very, it doesn't feel as supportive. In London, like, they, you, like people help each other out a bit more, I felt like, when I lived back home. I feel like they don't help each other out as much out here. Yeah, I mean, in a weird way, like, wouldn't that, I mean, I'm sure you've had the experiences where that kind of motivates you in a sense, as opposed to like Nashville, everything's kind of like getting handed to you. You have all the equipment, yeah. you have all like the service people are treating you well, you're getting dined pretty well. Like, I feel yeah. like if you're in that scene, like an up and coming band trying to make it for yourself, like you want to be treated like shit almost, right? Yeah, I guess it would add to the show. Some of those shows are kind of sometimes the best shows as well when you've just had like an utterly shit day and it's been, you know, four weeks of crap weather and, you know, everything's a struggle. It does add to the show, especially because then you almost have to make the show count more because that's the reason you do all the shit bits. Like, there's tours I've done where it's been miserable as fuck, but the for that, like, 45 minutes playing is what you, when you're like that was totally worth it. And then for like the two hours afterwards, you're like, this is cool. Like, this is what being in a band is about. So it kind of, you have to kind of balance it out a little bit. That's oh, yeah. kind of what makes it worth it. So. Oh yeah. So, I mean, do you look back at like your early life, like, like you said, back in London, like becoming an aspiring musician, breaking through, playing gigs, you know, building those relationships with people and look back and say like, man, like my brain's evolved, but at the same time, like my music is evolving at the same time because there are like a lot of dark and angry moments, but then like, you have to like look back and be like, all right, I got to grow from these. And like, you look back and you, you go to like the whiskey, like now and be like, okay, they treated us like shit. But at the same time, like I got to let it go because that's the way of the world. Like that's, that's the belly of the beast here now. And like, you understand that. Yeah. I, I get that. I totally get that. Um, you definitely kind of need the misery at times yeah. to like, to make good art as it were. So, um, yeah, man, it's it's tough. I'm really wondering what it's going to be like post all this stuff because it's going to be such a scramble for every band that hasn't made a penny in a year trying to get shows. And then all those shows that were cancelled are all going to be pushed for this year too. So I worry now that if you weren't booked on like festivals, last year's festivals, that it's going to be real tough to get like billing and stuff. That's my only yeah. real worry at the moment. I mean, that's how we're kind of, I, I work in the sports industry and a lot of like internships and jobs that people were supposed to have last year are just getting gifted them this year because it's yeah, exactly. your opportunity last year. We're not just yeah. going to take it away from you. So like, there's a lot of people graduating school and a lot of people kind of just waiting to find gigs that aren't in limbo. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that was like a lot of, cause like literally this hit right before all of those like big, like Coachella and yeah. all of those big, festivals on both the west and east coast i mean that's that's definitely going to be interesting to see coming out of this yeah yeah because i mean we were we were in europe and then we we got back into uh, back to the states the day the border shut like we landed and then we saw the trump tweet saying that the borders are going to be shut i was like fuck me i'm glad we got back in time we cancelled 
think we cancelled two shows at the end of the tour, the Italian shows, because they were like right in the middle of winter. Because that was like the first place in Europe where it kind of hit real hard. And I remember we did England and Scotland first. And then when we got to Paris, every TV channel, it was like fucking 28 days later kind of thing. Like every TV channel was all they were talking about was coronavirus. And obviously we don't really speak French. So trying to work out what they were saying and stuff was like, shit, like we called our, you know, our agent and stuff. And we're like, do we, do we go home now? What do we do? Do we carry on? They were just like, just carry on. We'll just stick to the regulations until see what happens. And I think at that point, people didn't really know how bad it was going to be either. I mean, there were shows, packed shows when you're just running around in a crowd filled with people and then, and then everything just shut down. So it's kind of, terrifying oh yeah and like at that point like you guys were like all right should we stay here and that kind of goes back to what you're saying about like having like someone you could trust that's gonna be like okay like yeah you guys need to come back now like it's not yeah. safe as opposed to someone who's just like oh everything's fine go 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 that game going, you know. bucks, and then you yeah. get stuck there and then you're there for the next four or five months well, and that was what would have been worrying because we would have been fully stuck there because they shut the the border out here for quite a while too I mean, it would have been fine, you know, stay with family and stuff, but it would have been bad for, like, Luke has kids, Steve has kids, so for, you know, us to be stuck. I remember, I think Luke got home and kind of quarantined himself in his studio for a few days anyway. Um, yeah, it's, who knows what it's going to be like, man, when it's all done and dusted, or even is it going to be done and dusted? Like, that's the thing, like, is this here to stay? I don't know. This is the new normal. I didn't even know how to use Zoom like a year ago. And now this is like the most efficient thing in the world. Like yeah. this is definitely going to be the new way of like doing media content for a lot of people. Well, it's going to change so many people's jobs. And like, it's also made companies realize like, shit, we don't, why are we, why do we have these buildings that people come to every day to do their work? Like also what's weird now is that when I watch TV shows that are like pre covid when they're like close and touching each other, you even go, Oh shit. Like you're like, they're touching each other. Like it's kind of, it's weird to see it now. Like it's, it's just going to become the new normal. I mean, you're seeing it in like gyms, like obviously you see it at schools or, you know, restaurants are being shut down whatever. But I feel like once concerts come back, like full time, like you see like a few little gigs at like bars and stuff. I know, but like, the actual shows and festivals when they come back and they're making everybody separate themselves from one another, that's going to be when you're like, okay, this is weird. This has to stop. Yeah. That's going to be the eye opener. I feel like no mosh pits anymore. It just be loads of people stood six feet away from each other in bubbles. I mean, that's got to take away some of the adrenaline for you guys too, up on stage, just kind of like seeing like a bunch of grass, like all these patches of like empty grass when you, there's nobody there. I've played a lot of those gigs <laughs> where there's no one there and it's pretty soul destroying, especially like, man, if you look out into a crowd and there's hardly anyone there and the people that are there are just kind of on their own going, you know, it's pretty, pretty depressing. <laughs> and again, like that kind of goes back to like what you're like, again, like that motivation factor and it kind of like blow it out of, of the park to like make those few people that are there think like, Oh, Holy shit. Like these guys are actually kicking ass right now. Like I got to tell my friend about these guys. Exactly. But fuck. Yeah. <laughs> it's so fucked. But who knows when it'll come back. I mean, we're talking about shows already and it's I mean, I remember when it first kicked in though, it was like, oh, it'll be fine by the end of summer and people were keeping their tours and it was like, that's not gonna work. 
So. I literally thought it would like by May, June. I'm like, all right, like that, that it's been reasonable enough to this point. We've been locked in our homes for two, three months. I, I couldn't even imagine like February, 2021. We're still wearing masks. No, I couldn't, still doing couldn't even contemplate it. Like I remember being like, man, imagine if it's like this for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> still going. But yeah, fuck man. Uh, I got one last question for you. I don't want to take too much of your time. Uh, you know, kind of what we were talking about before with, you know, you kind of discovering early on, like you wanted to be a musician who did what you wanted to do. And that's what your band wants to do, as opposed to, you know, breaking into the scene and, you know, getting all caught up in the toxic natures of the business side of things and being like, again, like Nirvana, Foo Fighters famous, where it's almost to the point where like, even they're not happy. Uh, Obviously the biggest thing in life is to be happy whatever you're doing. We talked about it with uh, Buzz Osborne, with the Melvins, obviously doing that as well as a big prime time example. But for you, kind of like in that balancing thing, and it's kind of hard to balance. I know right now it's probably a lot easier because again, there's no live gigs, but how do you balance, you know, like being the performer, the front man, the musician, as opposed to again, being like a family man, a husband, you know, being the guy at home when you're on tour and then you come back and it's like, where how do you balance all of that? What are your like daily routines? How are you able to like keep that going? And at the end of the day, just be happy with yourself. It's kind of hard really. I mean, I have a very, very supportive wife, which helps and she's, you know, you know, a clothing designer and stuff. So she, she, you know, she understands how it works and you just, just have to accept it. Like you just don't be a dick on tour and, you know, build trustworthy relationships and just, but what's weird when I get back from tour, it's weird for a couple of weeks because I have a tendency to sleepwalk quite a lot. But I do it where I'm so used to, at the moment, Luke is my bunk partner. Like whenever we split into, when we have to like share rooms, me and Luke always kind of bunk together. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not going to sleep naked with him next to me, am I? But like when I'm home, my wife catches me in the middle of the night getting up and I get I get dressed and I get back into bed. She's, she's, <laughs> Like you sleep one again, you sleep one again. I have no idea what's going on. Sometimes I wake up halfway through it and I'm like, fuck, like what's going on? Like I will get up, I put on jeans, I put on t-shirts, I put on, it's so weird, man. But um, as you were saying, to balance life out, I mean, no, really, man. The problem is now is you get back from touring and then you just have to go and work. Just try and scrape by at jobs because sometimes the touring just puts you into even more debt so when you get home it's more of a scramble to try and make as much money as you can possibly find just to cover some of the stuff so yeah it's it's tough some bands you have to get to like quite a level now for it to be like full livelihood it's that was the one realization i had when i was a kid like i used to be obsessed as a kid by this band called rachel stamp and they were like this little on reflection now, they're a little band. When I was a kid, I thought they were like superstars because they were in Kerrang! and Metal Hammer and stuff. And then I remember like going to Camden Market and seeing like the guitar player working in a clothes store, like a vintage store. And I was like, what are you doing? Like, you have a job, you work here? He's like, yes, of course. <laughs> so crazy, like when we started touring with bands that I really loved and like really looked up to as a kid and like my old band, I'd be like, man, this guy's so fucking, I worshipped you as a kid. It's so weird just hearing them having their little jobs and stuff. Like even like a weird example, like Napalm Death, like the singer Barney is like this super famous dude that's, 
you know, fronted one of the first, you know, bands like that. He, throughout his whole touring career, he's always worked in, like, shitty steel factories and stuff like that. He, like, just scrapes by. He basically, at this point, you're working to be in a band, basically. You do your day job to fund being able to go, right, I'm going to have a few weeks off now and I'm going to go and play in a band. So there is that. What are some of the gigs that you do when you're not touring? Like at the moment I work, I vintage guitar shops. I used to just flip, I still do it now. I just flip guitars. So I know kind of not very intellectually great, but I'm very much rain man when it comes to vintage gear. So I kind of, sit on ebay and crisis and reverb every day i even do it when i'm on tour and i find guitars when i'm on tour to bring back and flip whilst we're on the road and stuff so i've kind of always done that so that's how i make my side money is basically just flipping and selling guitars that's what's the do. biggest return on investment that you've made because that's kind of a tough you know business yeah thing, you know like like, like paying an x amount and then trying to get like yeah it's tough and especially because you can do it like little bits and bobs which i used to do but now it gets to like slightly higher ticket items and it's like i've done stuff where i paid like 10 grand for a guitar and flipped it for 20 done stuff like that a lot i mean i'm now in that situation now where i'm like i could probably sell because i i almost buy the ones that i want to keep anyway and then after a while i use them and i'm like do i really need this and i always buy them knowing that I can flip them. I wouldn't just, I wouldn't pay full price for a guitar. I always can kind of know what I'm buying into. So yeah, just a couple of grand here and there, as long as it gets me by, that's all I need. And obviously Steve, our bass player is like a proper high end cocktail bartender. So he makes crazy money when he's uh, not on tour, (laughs) but what's quite good though, is that when we do go on tour, he brings his little shakers and everything. And me and him are, probably have slight drinking problems anyway so it's quite nice to have like a high-end cocktail bartender with you um jacks again works doing guitar stuff and then uh luke does tech stuff now he can do it remote you know he has kids and stuff so um so yeah especially now we've all gone back to like trying to almost get full-time jobs while we're not touring i mean before we kind of did like side hustles that enabled us to get by when we weren't on the road. So now it's back to like, okay, touring isn't going to resume for a long time and we're not going to make any money whatsoever. So now it's work our ass off, which has kind of been quite good because we've almost like prepped for when stuff does come back to normal. I think we're kind of all out of the financial shit, (laughs) which is nice because there are, you know, there's tours you, some tours you do where you're like, we're going to have to eat it because it's worth doing it kind of thing. Like, we're going to have to live like total plebs for a few weeks because it's a good tour to do, you know? Because like, you could be like, Dave Grohl will be like, hey, do you want to come and do a Foo Fighters tour? And you may not get paid, you you know? So it's just like, you you have to do other side hustle shit to enable you to do the cool shit. So... As depressing as this. I mean, that goes back to, again, like the passion of it. Like, do you want to be in this because you want to be famous or do you want to do this because you love what you do? Not really. That's what a lot of people like don't understand at a young age, but like you understood it at a young age, I feel like. Yeah, definitely. That And that's what weeds people out fast. Like, I've met loads of dudes that are in bands and they stay in bands until they're like 25, 26. And then they're just like then real life hits and you're like, you can't live at your parents' house forever. And then your girl wants to get married or your girl wants to have a baby and 
you can't some people you can't just juggle it you have to it's a lot of sacrifice like a crazy amount of sacrifice it has to become the only thing you want to do in your life like you can't it's like people when they're just like oh what hobbies do you have and i'm like oh music is my hobby they're like no but you must do something else it's like no that's the only thing i know how to do (laughs) and it's kind of the only thing you want to do since you're a kid as well so it's like it's in you to do it, I feel. And I think Luke had a few years off and that was quite a game changer for him because he had a few years off being in a band. And then when we met, that was the major connecting point was he was just like, shit, I need to like do this for my soul. Cause he was like, I'm fucking miserable if I don't play music. So, um, so yeah, you have to, heart has to be in it, man. <laughs> oh my, I mean, that's, that's insane for you to realize that at a, at a young age too. Cause I know like there's kids even my age still that are still kind of trying to figure it out from that perspective. Yeah. Like there's people out there that again, are just fame junkies. Like they just want to be famous without actually realizing what that entails, what that actually means, exactly. you know? Yeah. They just chase that rather than chasing being like a good musician that loves your craft kind of thing. You have to see it as like being a carpenter most of times. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. Like, it's a kind of thing. You just, it, it just, it takes over your whole life pretty much. So you have to be with other humans that realize that that's what it's like. <laughs> well, I want to thank you so much, Lee, for uh, talking to me for like the past hour or so. Hopefully I didn't take too much of your time. Hopefully we could do this again someday because I'd love to pick your brain about certain stuff again in the future when you guys do go back on tour, what your lives are like then and what kind of your inspirations are, what, what's okay. kind of setting your soul on fire at that point in time. Because again, right. as you're evolving as, you know, as a person, as a musician, it's definitely cool to see what that inspiration brings to you guys as as songwriters and as musicians. All right. Definitely. Whenever, man, whenever you're ready, I'll be here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you stay safe and, uh, yeah, don't you do anything crazy up by a big bear. Try not. It's nice and nice and separated here. It's great. <laughs> nice, <laughs> it's nice and simple. That's all you need, man. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We've seen all the video call fails by now. The mute button mishaps, the cat cameos, people not realizing the camera's on when their pants are off. But none of this makes Fred feel any better about giving an entire sales pitch, mistakenly using a filter that turns him into an itsy-bitsy baby duck. How do I turn that thing off? It's too late, Fred. It's too late. When you realize it's better to do business in person, it matters where you stay. Welcome to the Hilton Garden Inn, Fred. The meeting room is right down the hall. Hilton. For the stay.